Welcome to Cool Stuff Ride Home. Marcus Baff and Reggie Rizzo with you once again, bringing you some of the more interesting stories of the day. On today's episode, can cursive writing make you smarter? The ISS gets a new passenger, a robot surgeon. Plus, this day in history, walking gets easier. Coming up on Cool Stuff Ride Home. Well, this story may very well appease the older generations like me who were taught how to print and write in cursive at an early age. A new study revealed human neural networks are more complex slash elaborate when writing by hand as opposed to typing a message on a keyboard. Per the researchers, this improved brain connectivity, which is crucial to memory building and information encoding, may indicate that writing by hand supports learning. To be honest, I don't find this to be all that surprising based on my own experiences, but at the same time, it's a give and take when you're talking about the speed of typing versus handwriting. It's fairly common knowledge at this point that pen and paper have been replaced by laptops or mobile devices for note-taking in most classrooms. In many cases, using a keyboard is recommended because of the speed and accuracy with which people can type today. That said, I always found my own personal recall of information to be significantly higher when I physically wrote out that info rather than simply typing it. And that's exactly what this study found. I'm exactly on board with you there. I feel the same way that if I write it out versus typing it, I will actually remember it a little bit better. But typing it is a lot faster. Yeah, yeah, that's and that's exactly it, the give and take of the two. Professor Audrey Vandermeer is a brain researcher at the Norwegian University of Science and Technology. She also co-authored the study published in Frontiers in Psychology. She stated, quote, we show that when writing by hand, brain connectivity patterns are far more elaborate than when typewriting on a keyboard. Such widespread brain connectivity is known to be crucial for memory formation and for encoding new information and therefore is beneficial for learning, end quote. So how they conduct the study? Well, the researchers collected EEG data from 36 six university students who were repeatedly prompted to either write or type a word that appeared on a screen. When writing, they used a digital pen to write in cursive directly on a touch screen. When typing, they used a single finger to press keys on a keyboard. High-density EEGs, which measure electrical activity in the brain using 256 small sensors sewn in a net and placed over the head, were recorded for five seconds for every prompt. So if you get a picture of what this study actually looked like, it truly does look like something out of the future with these netted hats that the uh, subjects are wearing. Now, connectivity of different brain regions increased when participants wrote by hand, but not when they typed. Per Vandermeer, quote, our findings suggest that visual and movement information obtained through precisely controlled hand movements when using a pen contribute extensively to the brain's connectivity patterns that promote learning, end quote. All right, so my only problem with this methodology at the moment is that very few people these days type with one finger anymore. Most people... I'm making a generalization here, but I would say 45 years of age and younger were likely taught how to type using all 10 fingers at some point in school. I, I know I learned how to do that when I was a freshman in high school. Now, would that make a difference in this study? Mm, tough to tell. Intuitively, I, I guess you wouldn't think so or I wouldn't think so, but you never know. Uh, I guess I would have preferred they executed the test in that manner, though, so we could at least eliminate that as a potential question. The other part of this methodology that may jump out at you is the fact digital pens were used instead of traditional pens. 
Now, despite that, the research team feels the results wouldn't differ much. Per Vandermeer again, quote, we've shown that the differences in brain activity are related to the careful forming of the letters when writing by hand while making more use of the senses, end quote. So essentially, since brain activity is related to the movement of the fingers forming letters, writing with a real pen in addition to printing is expected to have the same benefits as writing in cursive. Now, on the opposite side of this equation, the simple movement of repeatedly hitting a key with the same finger is less stimulating for the brain. Not all that surprising, I wouldn't think. Per Vandermeer, quote, this also explains why children who have learned to write and read on a tablet can have difficulty differentiating between letters that are mirror images of each other, such as B and D. They literally haven't felt with their bodies what it feels like to produce those letters. And when I say B and D, I'm talking about the lowercase versions of those letters. You know what? My kids actually, you know, they've used tablets for a while there and they do learn how to write in school, but B and D are difficult for them. So I completely understand where he's coming from. And I do feel like it is more stimulating for the brain if you're using all 10 fingers to type something out. It's more of a thought process versus staring and doing one at a time. Yeah. And that's where I, as I said, I, I would have liked to have seen them gone down that path. Now, Maybe that is a logical uh, place to to go next with this with this research after you've um, obviously taken these results into account and you further further that a little with a little bit better methodology. But we'll see. Uh, as far as the conclusion goes, essentially, it's this. Uh, it's a balancing act. The research team notes it's important for kids to keep up with continuously developing technological advances but also suggest the need to allow students to utilize actual pens from time to time. Guidelines to ensure that students receive at least a minimum of handwriting instruction could be an adequate step. For example, cursive writing training has been re-implemented in many U.S. states at the beginning of the year. Uh, we'll include a link to the story, by the way, at frontiersin.org in case you want to take a closer look at this particular study. Reggie, uh, I believe you mentioned during an episode of this show a while back, just a few weeks ago, that your kids are once again learning how to write in cursive, right? Correct. My daughter in third grade is starting to learn how to write cursive now, and she's very proud of the fact that she can do some words in cursive. And I, I'm a big fan of that. And one thing uh, with this too is uh, I think your spelling gets better when you write in cursive or when you write it out by hand because you actually have to think about what you're writing and it's not automatically adjusting for you. Yeah, 100%. And actually, I, I didn't note that, but they did find that to be the case within this study. Your better spelling habits of those who are accustomed to using a traditional pen. You don't have spell check. You don't have all the tools there to assist and, and simply correct things as you go. And I don't mean this to sound like old guy, get off my lawn, all technology is bad. <laughs> Certainly, uh, I make use of these things as well. But bottom line, as we've said throughout this story, it's a balancing act. And to try to ensure that your kids do have some of those skills inherently and are able to develop them without the need to rely on technology at all times. And not saying that in the modern world, you're going to need to do this uh, every day, but still doesn't seem like a, a bad step to take. And I will say this, I am not a cursive writer when I, I do write by hand a lot still, but I'm a printer and I print in all caps and it's not always pretty, but I will say I, I still think it leads to these same types of results. I retain information far better when I'm jotting them down with a pen as opposed to going in and typing because you can do that relatively mindlessly. And as a side note, as you were reading the story and talking about the the caps or whatever that the people were wearing in the study, 
all I could imagine was either Back to the Future or Ghostbusters with the big giant metal one that they had on their heads to test their brain function. Exactly. Exactly right. <laughs> it is. Uh, yes, it is reminiscent of those two. Well, not quite that that headpiece that Doc Brown rolled in out in uh, in 1955, but uh, similar, I suppose you could argue. Yeah, I, I'm sure it's advanced since the <laughs> since that time. Since Doc Brown invented it. <laughs> yes. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in store and on menards.com save big money at menards a spacex falcon 9 rocket is on its way to the international space station today with 8200 pounds of supplies and one of those items will be a two pound robot called mira or miniaturized in vivo robotic assistant the robot allows doctors to perform surgeries remotely, which may be useful if an astronaut needs surgery from a doctor on Earth. They plan on testing the surgical robot first to see how it performs in a microgravity environment. The test will be inside a microwave-sized experiment locker and will do tasks such as cutting a stretched rubber band to simulate human tissue and pushing metal rings along a wire. Miro was created by Virtual Incision, and in August of 2021, it performed its first surgery where it did a single cut on a patient for a hemocolonectomy. The robot has two controllable arms that can hold tools like scissors, and as of right now, the robot does need a human to control it, but Virtual Incision is working on a more autonomous version. John Murphy, CEO of Virtual Incision, said, Working with NASA aboard the space station will test how Mira can make surgery accessible even in the most faraway places, end quote. And Shane Ferrito, co-founder and CTO of Virtual Incision, added, NASA has ambitious plans for long-duration space travel, and it's important to test the capabilities of technology that may be beneficial during missions measured in months and years, end quote. I am waiting for that autonomous version, but I don't know if I trust it either. I like the idea that astronauts would possibly have life-saving surgeries in space and maybe not need a doctor completely controlling it. But I also don't know how much I trust robots to do surgery. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a natural skepticism from people uh, at this stage as to just how advanced it is. But like anything, it has to start somewhere and it's got to evolve, you know? I mean, <laughs> I didn't necessarily want to ride in an airplane that Orville and Wilbur Wright threw <laughs> out there either because it looked pretty dangerous. Uh, but you take steps from there, and of course, the uh, the early pioneers are are risk takers. So in this case, I, I think it's a cool step forward. Certainly, they're testing it. Will it be perfect? No, but I guess you could argue that it's better than what they have right now, which is, to my understanding, nothing up there. Even if it does still need to be controlled by a person, maybe that'll still assist with if somebody on board needs to do a surgery, if they had a doctor on board. And that person needs to do surgery. It may be a little more difficult with you floating around versus a robot arm where you might be able to control it a little bit better. Absolutely. But we know we're, we're, we're talking about remote surgeries taking place here on Earth in the not too distant future as well. At least that's my understanding and trying to keep up with some of these developments. You could have a doctor in Asia performing a surgery here, for example, using robotics. Now, how close are we to making that a reality? I really don't know, but it does seem to be something that you often read about. And again, 
I say this every day on the show. If anyone knows more or has insights, we'd love to hear them. Coolstuffcommute at gmail.com. Yeah, you make a good point there that, you know, sometimes you don't live close to the experts and you can't get to the experts. It'd be nice if the experts could kind of come to you. Everybody can go to Mayo Clinic or Cleveland Clinic <laughs> or one of the better you know, facilities in the country. That certainly would be a, a, a wild thing to think about. Speaking of technology, on this day in history, on January 30th, 1958, the first two-way moving walkway goes into service in Dallas, Texas, at the city's new municipal airport, Love Field. The groundbreaking technology was 1,425 feet long and had three loops and traveled at the speed of one and a half miles per hour. The moving sidewalk, a first of its kind at American airports, aimed to assist foot traffic from the terminal lobby to the plane ramps in each of the three concourses. The structure consisted of floor-level rubber carpet moving continuously with two sidewalls with a moving handrail similar to the ones you see on escalators. A series of wheeled pallets supported the deck equipped with flexible connections allowing adaptation to both vertical and horizontal curves on the track. The cost to build it was $234,704 or roughly $2.5 million if you put that into an inflation calculator for today. However, there were some unforeseen challenges. Uh, some individuals got caught in the moving sidewalk and even a dog that suffered a broken leg. These incidents hinted at potential design flaws. A couple notable incidents, one involving a seven-year-old boy. He was riding the sidewalk, fell near its end. His t-shirt became entangled in the mechanism. Uh, his mother tried to assist him, which led to her own clothes getting caught, resulting in her skirt and her petticoat being pulled off. They promptly shut off the power to the moving sidewalk, and the mother and son sought assistance at an office within the terminal. Uh, there was a more tragic accident that happened a few years after it opened, where a child lost their life. I'm not going to go into details on that, but that was obviously a very tragic incident. Those accidents prompted a thorough investigation leading to the temporary shutdown of the moving sidewalk at the airport. City officials acknowledged the need for preventative measures to avert future accidents. The moving sidewalks underwent inspections by engineers before any further use. However, this isn't the first moving walkway. That honor happened at the Chicago World's Fair in 1893. It ran the entire length of the 3,500-foot Great Pier that was built for people arriving on steamboats. J.S. Silsby from Chicago invented the design and they sold tickets for five cents to ride on it. Once you bought your ticket, the person would step on it and they were told to hold an iron post on the outside of the edge to get on and off. Each post did have a warning saying, quote, grasp this post in stepping on or off and face forward, end quote. And by the way, forward was in all caps. <laughs> they wanted to make sure people were facing the right way. Once on, it traveled two miles per hour, and it said that 3,000 people could be transported on the platform. Then in 1900 at the Paris Exposition, a record was set, which still stands today as the walkway was 2.1 miles long and traveled at five miles per hour, which doesn't maybe sound very fast when you're traveling by car, but when you're walking, that seems to be quite the pace there. Oh, you're moving. You're moving at that yeah. point. I mean, I can't imagine going to an airport these days without the moving walkways, especially the, the larger airports out there like Atlanta, for example, trying to get around there. I'm also always reminded of the Seinfeld episode where Jerry proposes having moving walkways throughout Manhattan for getting around. <laughs> and George, oh, you know what? There was a plan for that. There were plans to have walkways in major cities in the U.S. In 1902, it was reported that New York millionaires backed a plan to have them on the Brooklyn Bridge. 
and those would have traveled at 10 miles per hour, but the plan was never approved. The only thing I can think of there is it's a cost thing because yeah. it it makes a lot of sense on the surface. Cost, and I guess the other thing would be maintenance because it yeah, does it, feel like, and of course, living in a, in a tourist town like I do of Las Vegas, there are certain hotel properties that have the moving walkways installed. And I feel like it's a coin flip as to whether or not they're going to be functional when I'm on, I'm at certain properties, uh, half the time they just feel perpetually broke. So I guess I can see that. But then again, if it's broke, so what? It just becomes a regular sidewalk again. <laughs> well, and in New York, though, you have the weather. Will the winter weather make it mm, so you have to do more enough. maintenance on it? Fair enough. Yeah, you'd almost I mean, have to make an enclosed structure of some sort. Maybe if they had like a subway version of the walkways where you go underground to get places, then maybe maybe a little less maintenance because there's what less weather attacking it i guess you could say heat cold you know maybe you can control it a little bit better and by the way they made updates obviously at airports on how these work but it was less than a year ago i was at an airport in detroit and there was an older gentleman who hit the end of the walkway they need to get an ambulance for him because he fell so they're still you know not 100 safe you still have to make sure you use it properly. So accidents can still occur, although I do feel like we made it a lot more safe than it was back in 1958. Yeah, certainly. I mean, to some extent, you're never going to eliminate entirely the potential for human error that will exist. And particularly with you know folks who may not move quite as well when you get to the end of it. So uh, I think we have to exercise some level of just, uh, I, I don't know what the right word is, being discerning as to whether or not you should hop on one of those things. But at the end of the day, it does make life significantly more convenient when you're in a, in a place like an airport. And by the way, I always feel very proud of myself when I am getting to that end of it and I do a smooth walk off. No stumbling, no nothing. It just seems like I just smoothly walked off it. I know nobody's paying attention, but I feel good about myself. Man, doesn't take much to make you feel good. That's a good thing. It doesn't. I'm a simple man. <laughs> That'll do it for this simple man and Marcus Path for Cool Stuff Ride Home. We'll be back tomorrow with another edition. You can always reach us at coolstuffcommute at gmail.com. Again, I'm Reggie Rizzo. As I just said, he's Marcus Path. We'll talk to you tomorrow.